Producer Erwin Allen had a quartet of successful genre shows on the air in the 1960s, of varying success and even more variable quality. The first, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, ran for 110 episodes from 1964 to 1968 and was Allen's most popular show of the era. This was followed up with Lost in Space, probably Alan's best-known series, totalling 83 episodes in between 1965 and 1968. The fourth show, produced in this prolific time period, was Land of the Giants, which clocked up 51 episodes over two seasons of production from 1968 to 1970. Sandwiched in between these series, though, is one that I'd only seen briefly. Voyage started airing on ITV a little over two weeks after its US debut in 1964 and was rerun regularly for the next two decades, normally as filler in school holidays, but I do remember watching it. I don't recall ever seeing either Lost in Space or Land of the Giants as a young child, but did see them when the then-fledgling Channel 4 heard both shows on Sunday afternoons in the late 1980s. All three of these shows were a mixed bag. The early Lost in Space episodes are actually quite good. The formula was to take the Robinson family from one adventure to another and, like the old serials, end each episode with a cliffhanger leading into the next exciting adventure, which hopefully the audience can't wait to come back for. Sadly, Lost in Space's quality degenerated rapidly once the ratings came in. The monster shows were more successful than the family adventure shows, or so said the Nielsens, and Dr. Smith was far too nasty, having conspired to kill the Robinson family, including the kids. It was suggested that Smith be killed off, the robot dismantled, and the Robinsons' encounters with more silver-faced aliens be increased. However, Alan didn't want to get rid of Jonathan Harris, and instead Smith was turned into a comedic buffoon, the robot made more comical, and silly monsters became the norm. Land of the Giants wasn't as stupid, but was a very limited idea stretched out into a series, and as such, predictability and repetition quickly ensued. Neither show engaged me as much as Star Trek had, and as such, I only caught sporadic episodes. That third series, though, The Time Tunnel, completely passed me by. This may be because of its wacky erring schedule. The other three Alan shows all erred on ITV, but for some reason, The Time Tunnel was bought by the BBC. Why they picked up this show, but left Star Trek on the shelf for another year, is a decision lost in time, if not space. As such, Time Tunnel hit UK screens before Star Trek, debuting on Tuesday the 9th of July 1968 at 6.15pm. For some reason, the show didn't air a full season, and was dropped after 13 episodes. Not 13 consecutive episodes oh no 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 that would be far too easy after the first seven episodes the bbc skipped episode eight jumping to episode nine devil's island and then skipped about further airing episodes 10 14 17 and 18 before dropping the series completely the bbc continuity announcer told viewers that the series would return but when it did it wasn't on the bbc 
1970, the show, like Tony and Doug popping in and out of time, reappeared. But now on ITV, who inexplicably picked up with episode 8, previously skipped over by the BBC. ITV's wacky regionalisation meant episodes aired randomly across the different areas of the country. It took them four years until 1974 to err 29 of the 30 episodes, with episode 21, Idol of Death, not erring at all. Given I was only one when this last episode was run, it explains why I never saw it. ITV picked up the show for another errand in 1989, and it was screened by Channel 4, but for some reason I never did get around to watching it. I did see Irwin Allen Knight on BBC4 in 2008, where they screened, alongside the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea movie, various episodes of Allen's series, including the pilot to the Time Tunnel. Starring James Darren as Dr. Tony Newman and Robert Colbert, probably not the more pretentious Colbert, as Dr. Doug Phillips, the Time Tunnel sees... <sighs> Why should I bother telling you when the opening of each episode does it for me? Two American scientists are lost in the swirling maze of past and future ages during the first experiments on America's greatest and most secret project, the Time Tunnel. recognise the voice though telling you all about the adventures of Doug and Tony that's because it was Dick Twofield aka this guy danger danger the music was by Johnny Williams who would later go by the far more formal John Williams you may have heard of him the pilot episode, Rendezvous with Yesterday, had a teleplay by Harold Jack Bloom and was based upon a story and directed by Irwin Allen it's visually impressive for a TV pilot of this era. The cold open sees Senator Clark meet up with Doug and be taken via a road that disappears into the desert, literally, to Project TikTok, a top-secret quasi-military base where everyone is above board and honest. It's definitely science fiction. Project TikTok is a massive underground base that looks like it burrows deep into the Earth. The shots of the many layers and levels are dizzying and remarkably effective. Health and safety would have a field day with the elevators, though. They are cylindrical discs, similar to the transporter pads, that then freefall through the many underground levels with no support or handrails. Expository dialogue reveals the nature of the project. Time travel. Senator Clark, though, is a typical bureaucrat. He's not concerned with the benefits or disadvantages of time travel. He cares about the cost, an estimated $7.5 billion. We are introduced to General Haywood Kirk, played by Whit Bissell, Dr Raymond Swain, played by John Zaremba, and former Catwoman Dr Anne McGregor, portrayed by Lee Merriweather. We're told that the complex has 12,000 employees, but we'll only ever see the same three personnel and some random guest stars. Characters are typical of an Irwin Allen production. 
Tony is the determined scientist, prepared to do anything to prove his project works. Doug, the more level-headed of the Joe, isn't keen to go to those extremes, even if the Senator cuts their funding. You can all pretty much see where this is going, can't you? Later that night, Dr. Tony Newman steps into the time tunnel and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past. In this case, the deck of the Titanic. The sets and FX for Rendezvous with Tomorrow are pretty impressive for the day. The design of Project TikTok is a marvellous example of what nowadays would be called retrofuturism, complete with massive computer banks, reel-to-reel tapes and loads of blinky lights. But the best-looking design is saved for the time tunnel itself. The time tunnel is a two-tone monochromatic vortex that seems to stretch the full length of the facility. It sparks and sizzles as Tony enters it, which makes it look dangerous. TV and films seem full of scientists who seem to check their experiments by just testing them with no developmental phase or testing, but this is the first episode and exemplifies all the strengths and weaknesses of the show. On the plus side, the series is a good way to introduce kids to historical events, similar to the original premise for Doctor Who, but the negative is Tony and Doug can never really affect the outcome. Be it the Titanic, Pearl Harbor, the War of 1812, Krakatoa, the Alamo, or Little Bighorn, the outcome is never in any doubt. Doug and his team try to locate Tony, and via the magic of the tunnel, they can see and hear Tony, even if he cannot communicate with them. It seems to me, even the invention of a machine that can see back through time would be of great import, whether you can travel through it or not. As the team press buttons and twiddle knobs, Tony tries to prevent the sinking of the Titanic by telling the captain, Malcolm Smith, played by the day the Earth stood still's Michael Rennie, that he is from the future. It goes about as well as you would expect. Tony never learned. In the episodes I've watched, he and Doug always tell people they are time travellers, and they always think that they're mad, or that they're gods. Despite allegedly being scientists, Tony and Doug always seemed more than happy to tell people about future events, announce to all and sundry that they were from the future, and generally show no concern about screwing up the timeline. Tony must have already messed around with time in some way, as the captain of the real Titanic was named Edward. Despite Tony and Doug having no qualms about altering history, they never seem able to manage it, implying that time is a rigid concept that can't be broken, no matter how much messing around our heroes do. There's an interesting idea there, but it's never really explored. Owen Allen's shows were always about the next great adventure. Doug and co. locate Tony and realise that they can lock onto him and pull him out, but they can't guarantee he'll come back to his own time. Rather, he could end up anywhere. And thus, your premise for a show. Every week, they can lock on to Tony, and, as it turns out, Doug, but they can't pull him back to the present day, essentially leaving him bouncing around in time, hoping to one day find his way home. His premise sounds remarkably familiar. Doug returns to the same time zone to try and effect a rescue, but it all goes horribly wrong, because if it doesn't, we have no series. Arguably, Doug is the more heroic and less stupid of the duo. He forbade Tony from trying the time tunnel, and Tony went ahead and did it anyway, so it's up to Doug to pull Tony's fat out of the fire, a gesture he pays for with his own freedom, as both men end up lost in time and space. Take that, Robinsons. Rennie does a good job as the stoic Captain Smith, a man now aware of his fate, but a fate he meets with dignity. 
And it's when the show focuses on these guest stars that it's at its best. It's certainly not the poor scientists trapped back at the project who are stuck watching a night to remember the source of most of this episode's footage on the project's view screens. There's an extended version of this pilot episode with an additional scene after Doug and Tony are pulled away from the Titanic. In this 55-minute cut, Tony and Doug are separated, and Tony is pulled back to his own time but 10 years too early. It's 1958, not the then-future of 1968, and he's pulled back into the tunnel before he can be shot dead by his friends, who don't know him yet, for wandering around a top-secret military base. This footage was later incorporated into episode 3, End of the World. With Doug and Tony reunited back in the time stream, they end up in a prehistoric jungle footage later used for episode 23, Chase Through Time. The pilot, as erred, which has a running time of around 48 to 49 minutes, ends with them trapped on the first manned journey to Mars, which led directly into the next erred episode, One Way to the Moon. The pilot pretty much sets the rigid template that the series will follow. Tony and Doug are plucked from time, normally just before they're about to die, transformed back into the clothes they were wearing before, always clean and pressed, and deposited in some other time zone. From there, hijinks ensue, with Tony and Doug normally split up, captured, getting into fights and then getting out of there, just before all hell breaks loose. The majority of the scrapes they get into are normally reliant on what stock footage Alan could lay his hands on from the 20th century Fox vaults this week. The formulaic nature of Time Tunnel doesn't prevent it from being magnificent fun. It's sluggish on occasion, with obvious padding, but when it's good, it's pure 60s science fiction television entertainment. Critics of the show are correct, the characters are lacking somewhat, and they are amazingly agile and capable at fighting for scientists, and the plots do creak. But I quite liked it, more than any of the other Alan shows anyway. Of the early episodes of The Day the Sky Fell In about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was the best because it wasn't about Pearl Harbor. It was a personal story about Tony finally finding out what happened to his father, who was at Pearl on the day of the attack, but whose body was never found. I appreciated The Last Patrol for showing the British in the Battle of 1812 as being sympathetic. I was expecting a caricatured over-the-top representation and didn't get it. Likewise, the Japanese in the day the sky fell in weren't too over the top either, and there's a relatively positive portrayal of Native Americans in Massacre. Revenge of the Gods about the Greeks and the Trojans is dumb as dirt, but One Way to the Moon was really quite good. Sadly though, this latter episode pointed an inadvertent way forward. As I mentioned, Alan had learned from his other shows that episodes that featured monsters or aliens scored higher ratings, and it was pretty impossible to do that with a purely historical show. To solve this dilemma, Alan started setting more and more episodes in the future so the writers could feature alien invasions. Visitors from Beyond the Stars is the most egregious example, and whilst a fun alien invasion show set in the 1800s could have worked, it wasn't this one. More aliens show up in Chase Through Time, and any time they did I kind of eye-rolled myself through the whole adventure. Whilst alien monsters and invasions work in Doctor Who... I didn't buy them in the time tunnel, whose historical journeys are generally centred on Earth, and for the most part was a more serious historical drama. Give me episodes where they happen to pump into Robin Hood or Billy the Kid any day. The time tunnel was a formulaic but fun adventure show. Yes, there could have been more characterisation. 
Neither Tony nor Doug seemed overly bothered that they leapt from one scrape to another with nearly a chance to catch their breath, and they really bothered to examine the ethics or morality of time travel. There were even episodes where Doug and Tony ended up only five or ten years in their own future, begging the question, why didn't they stay there? Surely it's better to skip over a few years, but no longer be stuck bouncing around in time than being forced into this Groundhog Day-style existence. I know they can't, because it means the series is over, but to at least address this would have been interesting. If nothing else, imagine how much back pay they will have accrued. Instead, Tony and Doug are left bouncing around in footage from old movies, before leaping onto their next great adventure. Despite their lack of concern for altering time, they really change anything. Because they can't. They jump from one major historical hotspot to another, bound by no geographical or logistical restrictions. Continuity is all over the place. Sometimes the scientists trapped at the other end of the tunnel can help Doug and Tony, other times they can't. They never seem to express frustration that they're trapped in the lab watching episodes of the time tunnel on their view screen. This should get annoying, but watching something dependable and predictable at the moment was comforting. I think I enjoyed the time tunnel far more than Alan's other shows. Lost in Space was too silly and Land of the Giants was a gimmick in search of decent stories. The time tunnel isn't a good show, but it's an enjoyable one. I wouldn't recommend binge-watching this, it's far too repetitive for that, but it's a fun 50 minutes if you catch an episode here and there. Quantum Leap would essentially redo this concept from the ground up, almost to the letter, but solve all of the problems. Quantum Leap focused on character. The premise wasn't that Dr. Sam Beckett would land in historical hotspots per se, but that he would become involved in the lives of the people in those historical hotspots. And the premise of Quantum Leap, unlike every other time travel series ever, actually involves Sam changing time. He also did get fed up with bouncing around, and we felt for Beckett. Whereas the nature of television of the time meant that Doug and Tony were the same from week to week, with no real logical progression or development. Perhaps, one day, Sam will leap into Tony and right the wrong that Tony and Doug are lost in time. Now that's a crossover I'd like to see. Did you leave the car running, Andy? I did. I'm not sure why, but I did. It, it, it's important. Like getting these comics from Ryan and Chris's Nightcast offices. Why are we getting these comics from Ryan and Chris? So, since Nightcast isn't covering what they originally set out to cover, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Jim Starlin run of Batman. So, we're getting the comics from them to do that. And, and they know that we're doing this? What? That we're covering Batman issues 414 to 430? Yeah, totally. I, I checked in with them and everything. So you got permission to get these comics, which includes the storylines, Ten Nights of the Beast, The Cult, and The Death in the Family. I totally told them we were covering these books, yes. 
And we're starting these episodes in May. That is, if you actually edit them on time. Yeah, Andy. The the series starts in May and can be found on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Busting my balls and everything. All right, right. Well, let's, let's hurry up. There are listeners that want to hear this, and I have to get back to Atlanta in 28 hours so I can get my flight home. Oh, no problem. I got the comics right here. What's going on here? Andy? Mike? What are you doing here? Why do you have our comics? Say, Mike... Yes, Andy. We didn't get permission to take these comics, did we? No, Andy. And when you told me to get the box out of the car, you were really picking the lock to get in here? Yes, Andy. So what do we do now? Well, uh, we could try to talk our way out of this, but when I tell you to run, run! The Overlooked Dark Knight covers the Jim Starlin Batman run, a multi-part series of episodes beginning in May of 2020. From the grisly dumpster killings, to a death in the family, and everything in between. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailey-Tude podcasting network, located at www.fortressofbailey-tude.com. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and Spotify. I'm gonna barbecue your ass in molasses! Okay, our first email tonight is from Damien Lee. Hi Andy, hi Damien. Thanks as always for your excellent podcasts. Now that I'm finally back home in Beijing, I'm walking my dogs for two hours every day and burn through your stuff the minute you post it. And it's finally happened. I've started on the Listen to the Prophets back catalogue and plan to watch alongside. I want to hit the end at the same time as the podcast, so if that's fortnightly, I now have 72 weeks to watch 140 plus episodes. I love what I've seen of DS9, so this is the incentive I've been looking for. I was actually emailing because I'd heard you and Michael Bailey talking about how you've started watching Young Justice. It's hands down my favourite TV adaptation of the DCU, and I just got my daughter to sit down and rewatch season two, which we watched together way back when it was first on, so we could start season three last night. She may be 14 now, but she'll be my little girl on occasion. Um, I, I, I don't remember saying we watched, I mean I saw it, but I'm not re-watching it. I don't know, maybe we said something wrong. I don't know. Thanks as always. Have a great weekend, Damien. Well, you're very welcome, Damien. It's always nice to hear from Damien, who I've met a couple of times. And he's lovely. Thank you for emailing in. Our next email tonight, it's Zach Empire. Well, consider yourself lucky, says Zach. You are officially the only podcast I've written to more than once. I've given some thought to things you've discussed the last few episodes and thought I should share. As far as the randomness of the show and if it drives people away, I would say not. Many of the podcasts I listen to are comics related, and of those, many are index shows. When a new episode comes up, you almost 100% know what it will be. Even the ones that are not index shows seem to focus on at least a particular topic. A DC horror podcast will talk about horror. A Spider-Man podcast, Spider-Man. So to have a show that is seemingly random and is always a nice surprise. It's also a way to learn about new things. Some of the shows you've talked about I'd never heard of. If you're a Spider-Man fan listening to a Spider-Man podcast, you're probably at least familiar with the topics discussed. 
Something you've also talked about before is the general negativity, not just in fandom, but also the world at large. Why this is, is beyond me. I cannot see the point of hate watching or doing any activity I didn't like. If a show didn't interest me or I lost interest, I wouldn't watch it out of spite. There are plenty of other things to do. Taking part in something you actively hate also seems to support whatever it is. Let's say you hate Rob Liefeld, who I use as an example, not to pick on, but because he's such a controversial figure, and you buy his comic just to tear it to pieces on your YouTube channel. All the company sees of that is that regardless of content, Rob Liefeld sells comics. Doesn't matter if you're buying it because you hate it, you're still spending money. If the point of a company is to sell product, and the company sees that it's the buyer who will put money into a product they don't even like, what is it to stop the company from trying to improve and provide better service? It seems silly, and honestly like you're a bit of an idiot, if you constantly complain that something should be held to a higher standard, but you show a complete willingness to support the level it's at now. Yeah, I, I don't buy or watch stuff I don't care about. And, you know, it's quite easy to avoid stuff like that as well, because there's so much content at the minute. You cannot keep up with it all. I've never seen, for example, I've never seen Doom Patrol. I've never seen Swamp Thing. I've only seen the first episode of Titan Season 2. Every single season, I fall behind with Supergirl and The Flash. I haven't watched Arrow regularly since about Season 5. I The only one of those I do make an effort to keep up with is Legends of Tomorrow. And what you find is... You can find out off the internet and stuff episodes that sound good and sound interesting and still keep up with the main story arcs because an awful lot of those shows that are still doing 20 episodes a year are awfully padded and there's an awful lot of the CW shows that are just soap opera, cringe-worthy sentimentality that I just can't be arsed with. Batwoman has just started and at the moment there doesn't seem to be any sentimentality in that but We'll see how it goes. So, yeah, I'd rather stick by and watch and read the things I like. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed the episode of you talking over Star Trek. You were right in saying that it's a show like that. You cannot edit. You just have to keep going. It's funny to get such immediate reactions in a time when you can just stop and look up things on your phone. Do you think you might do this with a show like The Incredible Hulk? You've done a couple of Hulk-themed episodes, and I think you would have fun with that. Um, Michael Bailey and I did a Yak Track over The Incredible Hulk Returns on this show. So that wasn't that long ago. So scroll back through the archives and see if you can find that one. And on, and on A-Kids Comics, which I used to do with Michael, all the episodes are still available. I'm sure we did a commentary on an Incredible Hulk episode. I think we did The Psychic. I'm sure we did. We did a summer once where we did nothing but audio commentaries on superhero television shows. Back when there was only <laughs> a few superhero television shows. You spend a year doing it now, wouldn't you? Uh, so go and check them out. Whether I'll do a Hulk commentary, I don't know. I don't know if I know enough or feel that I could waffle enough just off the cuff like that as I can with Star Trek. Because I love Star Trek. I have a question that I also think could make for a fun topic. With everything going on right now, people are talking about what shows to binge watch. Do you think you could do a top 10 binge-worthy comic book runs? Something that lasted at least a year, be it a title or creative team. Oh, that's interesting. That is a very good idea. I may steal that. Yeah, I may nick that. Hmm. Give that some thought. Well, I've rambled on for a while now, so I'd better sign off. Hope this found you in good health and that you and your family are staying safe. Thank you. Uh, well, same for you. 
It's Zach Empire. I hope that you're staying safe as well. I hope that everybody who's listening to this is staying safe because, you know, it's a wacky world in which we live at the moment, isn't it? Our final email tonight, Oliver Villar is back. Hello, Oliver. Episode 148, Amazing Spider-Man 101 through 105. In 1991, Marvel Tales reprinted both Amazing Spider-Man 101 and 102, and this is how I was able to read those issues. The reprint for issue 102 was a special double-sized issue. I later bought the reprints of Amazing Spider-Man 103 through 105 via 70s Marvel Tales issues. Unfortunately, the page count in a Marvel comic in the 1970s was 17, so whenever Marvel Tales would reprint those Spider-Man stories, a few pages would be omitted. Looking back now, the pop culture references in issue 101 were a bit eye-rolling to me. I also didn't know who comedian David Fry was until I looked him up on Wikipedia. Fry was mostly known as a political comic who did impressions of political figures, thus the Spyro Agnew reference in that same issue. I liked his Batman reference, though. I didn't mind the Dick Cavett reference in issue 103. Cavett was great for his time, as he had a lot of great musical guests, including Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, George Harrison, and David Bowie, to name several. I never really thought about it, but Kazar seemed to know that Peter and Spidey are the same person. Yes, he did. Well... He kind of tangentially knew. If you recall the issue where Kazar came to town and was hired by Jonah to bring Spider-Man in, he meets Spider-Man and realises that Spider-Man is quite honourable, so he decides not to bother going through with the contract. And later on, by pure coincidence, he walks past Peter in the street and recognises the scent um, of Spider-Man. I don't know if you can buy that in the shops. But he recognises the scent of Spider-Man as he walks past Peter. So he knows that the kid he just walked past is Spider-Man. But he doesn't know his name. And we don't know if he got a decent look at him. So it's ambiguous. And in the issues I just covered where they all go to the Savage Land. Kazar never meets Peter. He only meets Spider-Man. So there's no reason for Kazar to put together that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, even though he has a rough idea of the age that Spider-Man really is. Oliver continues, can't remember if that's stuck in later stories, and I reread the sensational Spider-Man issues by Dizago and Wiringo with appearances by Kazar a while back. I agree, story-wise, Gwen would be modelling for the Bugle, just to spite MJ. But I think all Roy was thinking was that Peter and Gwen were dating, so it made sense to him. There is a Roy Thomas appreciation board on Facebook, which is run by his manager, John Cimino, and one can easily ask John a question about Roy's career. I will post a question right away. Anyway, I can't help but think that if Conway had written the story, it would have been MJ in the bikini. Since Gog's debut and having started collecting in the 80s, Gog has appeared in Eric Larson's Revenge of the Sinister Six story arc from Spider-Man as a surprise member of the Six, and recently in Nick Spencer's Amazing Spider-Man run. Do you know, I do not remember him being in Nick Spencer's run. I'm reading that every month. What does that say about, does that say about me, or does that say about the strip that I'm not remembering anything about it? Anyway, while Stan was known for his bad memory, I can seem forgetting that Smythe knowing who Peter was, as those stories were plotted by Ditko and only scripted by Stan. As for Harry's party in issue 105, Stan was never great with timelines for the most part. If it had been another writer, the party preparation would have been mentioned in issues leading up to 105. To be fair, Stan did prepare for Flash's going away party prior to issue 47. 
Looking forward to the final issues of Stan's glorious run on the title and then the Conway run eventually. Keep up the good work, Oliver Villar. Well, I probably won't do the Conway run because we've covered an awful lot of the key points. The Clone Saga, the night when Stacy died and all that stuff. Mate and Michael did that over on Hey Kids. So you may want to go and check out Hey Kids comics on this illustrious network and uh, check out those episodes that we did a long time ago. I don't really want to do whole chunks of stuff again that I've already covered, which is essentially the Clone Saga. So after I finish up Stan's run, the current plan is to do an episode looking at all of the stuff Stan did after he left Amazing Spider-Man, right, when he came back to Spider-Man, like he did Amazing Spider-Man annual... Oh, God, was it 18 with the Scorpion where Jonah gets married... And then other little short stories that he contributed, obviously, Spider-Man Kingpin to the Death with John Romita, and he did a couple of stories in anniversary issues of Spider-Man. But I didn't, I couldn't decide whether to actually look at the ones he actually wrote or not, but if you do that, you're very limited. Stan wrote very little after quitting Amazing Spider-Man. He scripted a fair few things, but he never actually came up with the story or the plots for him himself. I mean, you can argue he never did that anyway, but, you know, that's a conversation for another time. Anyway, thank you, Oliver. Much appreciated. As is It's Zack Empire. And Damien Lee, much appreciated you joining me for this particular episode. I know it's a quick one, but it was just a little bit of, a little bit of fun to just cover the time tunnel, which I have been watching recently, because it's, it's on the horror channel at the moment. Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com is where you can email me should you so desire and let me know what you think of all the drivel that I'm doing on this here show. The Palace of Glitter and Delight is a True True Freaks presentation. And at the moment, everyone's still in lockdown, so who can say if everything's going to be alright? You know? Too early to make that call, I think. So, uh, on that note, on that bombshell, I'll see you all next time. Take care. Stay safe. Goodbye.